Hey, and welcome to Contracast. My name's Kat Boyd, and I'm joined as ever with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? It's going fine, I usually say at this point, um, but it's kind of not, actually, uh, after the last uh, few days' events. Oh, the last few days have been bad for my blood pressure. Yeah, I've made a number of videos in which my head has swollen up so that it looks like a huge beetroot. Um, yeah, you're looking a lot less pink today. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, blood pressure might come down a little bit, but reading left-wing social media at a time when the most famous socialist in the country is being uh, persecuted in the most ridiculous way is definitely something that's going to cause you a spike in blood pressure. Definitely. Yeah, well, you have made videos. I have made enemies. Um, I really had to um, try and think before I tweet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's definitely, it, it's definitely uh, a time to st- well to step away from social media, but not 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 be arguing with everyone still at kind of two o'clock in the morning. But uh, it's uh, it's quite something. I think it's been a moment of real clarification. Uh, on the left about... So this is, we're talking obviously about the decision to suspend Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party following his comments in light of the Equality and Human Rights Commission report on anti-Semitism. And yes, Corbyn's subsequent suspension. And that is, (sighs) there's a whole pod on that in itself. And I know that you've done a video um, with... Cy Engbert, is it? Cy Engbert, um, yeah. Um, so you've done that video with him. And that's kind of more on the substantive issues. I think that what's really infuriated me is has been the reaction to Corbyn's suspension um, and how it's been... The reaction to it, basically, on socialist Twitter, which is, a, I mean, it's a terrible place to be at the best of times, but um, particularly right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it really exposes the depths of confusion. But I think that in, in among some socialists, it must be said by the way, right? See, when you even say the reaction on social media, there's two very different types of reaction, right? The the thing that you generally see from kind of influencer trend setting, you know, official dumb, those sorts of parts of of the left, their response to it is very different from if you were just to type Corbyn into the search bar on any social media site. If you do that, you find two types of people. Bizarre far-right reactionaries chortling about it, of course you find that, but also tons and tons of angry left-wing people defending Jeremy Corbyn, right? Mostly with very sound arguments. The th- the bit that's going to give you blood pressure is, you know, blue twit, blue blue <laughs> blue twit, uh, blue uh, tech, you know, kind of left wing social media. That's gonna that's gonna give you blood pressure. Like but me, what, yeah, like you. I mean, I I regret my blue tick. It's like yeah. a tattoo that you know, once you sober up, you're suddenly like, oh, <laughs> yeah, like you're cringing from it. Yeah, uh-huh. but um. The you know so many ways in which people can equivocate and not just straightforwardly simply say this is wrong 
Um, and as, as perhaps we'll go on to discuss, I think that there's basically two different motivations behind that. Uh, and I don't want to detract in any way from, from saying with all this that like there are people, good people mobilizing around to defend Corbyn. I'm talking here about a subset of folk, right? There are still people on the left. There's a meeting going ahead in defense of him. A bunch of trade unionists have signed a statement defending Jeremy Corbyn. There are still plenty of good people uh, who understand basic principles around solidarity, right? But I don't think we can ignore the element, because I think it's a healthy learning experience, the element who won't defend him. And I think they basically fall into two broad categories. One is people who have been deluded by a certain version of what they think to be their anti-racist commitment. And you know this kind of stuff. It's the people who are saying, if anyone in the Jewish community says that Corbyn is an anti-Semite, their voices must be listened to, for example. The, 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 the only interpretation you can take from that being that any accusation coming from that quarter must be correct on this issue. And we know this argument. We've seen it a hundred times. Listen to the voices of XYZ identity group. They are right on, on the issues that impact them. And the issues that impact them are always stood, understood very narrowly, as though black people, for example, only care about racism and only care about racism towards black people and are the experts on that issue and none other. That's one category of people, people who agree with those, let's call them what they are, postmodernist ideas basically about racial essentialism and, and, and sort of uh, various other kinds of community essentialism, right? And perhaps some people have been confused by that legitimately because it's quite a strong trend on the left. Then there's another group, and I'm going to say, like, these groups significantly overlap, and I think it's meaningful. Then there's another group whose obvious motivation behind, behind all that blah, blah, are people who are looking for careers in party politics, in the trade union bureaucracy, in the media, and in academia who are protecting their asses by not coming out strongly in favour of defending Jeremy Corbyn, right? And as I say, these two elements overlap considerably. Some of the worst examples I've seen of this are, I've told you about this one already, but I can't shake just how ugly and vulgar it is. Sean Berry, who is the Green candidate to be Mayor of London uh, in the next election, put out a message where she said a lot of Labour people are, by the way, I think this is a wrong approach to this stuff in general. I've never been in the Labour Party, you've never been in the Labour Party, that's not our political tradition. But if I had an alternative vehicle to sell at this point, I'd hold back just a minute on saying, now that you're getting purged out of the Labour Party, why don't you join my party? Now, it's one thing to do that, right, without even having an argument with people about politics or whatever. That's what Shan Bailey was doing, but she was doing something much worse than that. She said, you, you can come to the Green Party, but before you try and join, read my Thicko's Equalities Checklist. And you know what I mean? It's that, that Equalities Checklist that some people love to whip out, and it sort of says, you know, the Green Party does not accept uh, sexism, racism, you know, oppressive attitudes of any kind, but it's a long, you know, kind of list. And she says, you have a look at this before you join our party. And basically what you're saying is, you can join the Greens, but you are filthy, reactionary scum, and you need to sort of clean yourself before you 
before you come into this party. It reminded me of, you know, in any group of friends, there's one parent that the parents of one friend, like, uh, won't let the kids, when the kids come around to play at their house, won't let them sit on the sofa or something, which is like shrink wrapped. You know what I mean? Get those filthy shoes, leave those shoes outside the house, right? It was the most grotesque, appalling statement of just poisonous middle-class culture, poisonous middle-class culture, to say to a group of people who are being victimized, oh, well, perhaps you can join my party. By the way, as if anyone would want to join the fucking Greens, right? But you can join my party, but cleanse yourself of your wicked, wicked reactionary attitudes before you come in here. Does anyone think that's left-wing politics? Does anyone think that that is remotely respectable? I think it's disgusting. I think it's disgusting. And it's obviously reactionary. It's part of a worldview that the people out there uh, have all these sick ideas in their heads. Disgusting. Disgusting. Um, well, I mean, hell mend them. Because if you want to try and build a political project that's built on purity, particularly on questions of identity, then you're on to plums. Like yeah. that, it's not going to work. Like I've been involved in the left for long enough to know that you can't build a cohesive, fighting, left-wing movement on questions of identity. It's just not possible. And I mean that as much as including class as an identity and not as a relational force um, or an ahistorical grouping. Like, you, you actually can't build power on that basis. I mean, the whole thing is totally sick. Um, like, I've really, I suppose in a way it's been a useful exercise in finding out exactly where people stand politically on these questions. Because actually, turns out, you've not been in the Labour Party. I've not been in the Labour Party. Most of our own comrades haven't been in the Labour Party. Um, in fact, we spent most of our political life doing in the party and having a go until Corbyn came along and then we um you know rallied to Corbyn not to labor I think it has to be said and it turns out that we're some of the best labor leftists in Scotland like that's actually what's happening here yeah. because there's people out there who have said nothing in defense of Corbyn they've said nothing um, about the wrongs of what has happened to him. This is a man who is a lifelong anti-racist. Yeah. Who is going to be remembered as an anti-Semite because it will be the same bloody newspapers that write history, like when he is gone. They will talk about him being an anti-Semite. Um, and this is a man who's dedicated his entire life to fighting injustice and oppression um, and what's happening to him is horrific. And if it can happen to Jeremy Corbyn, um, who has, like, he is from a middle-class background. He is educated. He does have cultural and social capital. If it can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. Like, any of us can be destroyed by these these machines. Um it's a really, really sad state of affairs. One of the worst parts of it has been the Scottish Labour reaction to it, Richard Leonard's reaction to it, where he said um, something along the lines of, I consider Jeremy Corbyn a friend, um, but I don't comment on internal dispute matters. 
like this is I mean this is the same party who has sent about 25 emails um, in two weeks asking for Margaret Ferrier to resign saying that they will work with Nicola Sturgeon to get rid of Margaret Ferrier so it's okay to intervene in other parties internal disputes procedures or disciplinary procedures or whatever it is they're called but you won't stand up for a man who is a friend a comrade and let's not forget that I actually don't know if we would have in Scotland a left-wing leader of the Labour Party if it hadn't been for someone like Jeremy Corbyn there was a momentum there that allowed the parts of the left in Labour in Scotland to actually gain a bit of a grip on the party and um, to get rid of Jim Murphy to try and like you know restore some sense of uh, social democracy to the policy platform and like if it was me I would be falling over myself to defend someone like Jeremy Corbyn like people there will be more people who will fall by this sword there will be more people who are accused um, of these things I mean and <laughs> the irony is that this isn't Corbyn isn't someone who's been silent on racial oppression there's hundreds of MPs loads of people in political parties who have said zip their entire lives when people have been starving when people have been getting bombed like the Labour Party Tony Blair's still a fucking member like <laughs> he has blood on his hands right now it's Jeremy Corbyn who has been active and this is the real sinister Kafkaesque part of it is that this is someone who I think this is why it hurt it, it is painful to watch because this is a someone who has integrity, one of the few politicians who actually has integrity and backbone being destroyed. And watching his so-called comrades not come to rally around him, not all of them, of course, he does have support, but people that I would have expected to be rallying around him are not, and that's really grim. But at the end of the day, this it kind of proves my point about our political tradition in relation to Jeremy Corbyn, which is that we've always kind of been closer to the tradition, the same tradition as Corbyn than Labourism. Like Jeremy Corbyn spent his entire career defending the ideas of the so-called far left inside the Labourist organisation, anti-war, anti-trident, anti-imperialist, like anti-racist, like these ideas and really like propelling himself um, into those movements and taking part in those demonstrations and you know being kind of on the front line of that whereas I think that I've said this before but I think that Richard Leonard has spent most of his career defending laborism against the far left and um, you know or at least I don't mean him personally but he's more of that kind of tradition he's of a laborist tradition so we do have a uh, some kind of political relationship with Jeremy Corbyn and I think that you know if it's up to us to try and defend him to you know try and get some activity around it going to try and get you know a public letter then then it'll have to be that way um, but I'm really just kind of shocked and depressed at the lack of solidarity that he's been shown by people on his own bloody side there's definitely an element of people who have been elevated by Corbynism to say positions in the party or positions of media spokespersonship 
or possessions even in, in trade unions who rode that general way, right? Because, you know, you always get this thing. It was true in the independence movement as well, right? Um, where I, I remember when we put on the first RIT conference, you had some people saying, um, in good faith, but rather patronizingly, well, this is, thank God, now we've got a new generation of people coming through who can carry this this politics. And there was a lot of that around the Corbynism thing. There were a lot of people, particularly younger people, perhaps, who were sort of like, yeah, we're the new wave, we're the new generation, and, and so on. People who got list, lifted on the crest of that wave, when, you know, the wave subsides, they want to land on their feet. You know, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a fundamental hollowness to that kind of generational politics, a certain type of kind of movementist ways of talking about movements, about like, we're the generation that's coming through and we're going to blah, blah, blah. Underpinning that is fundamentally quite cynical, self-seeking, career-seeking type activity. This is one of the reasons, by the way, where I don't agree with this generation left stuff, this idea that we're going to get a reformed capitalism because young people have, um, are organically more left-wing than everyone else, right? I'm sorry, but the system has a way of capturing people, of chewing people up, of expelling people from polite society if they won't behave, if they won't conform, and of accepting them in and embracing them if they will conform. And that's, of course, like, laborism is that machine par excellence. Jeremy Corbyn should treat it as a badge of pride that he's being treated in this way, even though it's fucking horrible. Because what it means is the machine can't digest him. He was the leader of the official opposition, of his Maj Her Majesty's official opposition. And even now, after having that, holding that position in, in British society, the system cannot digest him. He's indigestible. And there are a lot of very digestible people on the Labour left, like, especially the ones that you see a lot more of. Uh, and it's tragic. It's tragic. But it is what it is. Like, it, and, and it is cowardice. But there's plenty of people who are only socialists when it's um, politically advantageous to do so. And I want them to know that we can fucking see you. Like, we can see you with a red jacket or your red tie or your new beard or your glasses because you think that makes you look like a socialist. People can see it and they can see you right through it. And when it comes to the crunch in moments like this, you will be judged. With yeah. which side yeah. do you take? I'd hate, and for anyone, I'd hate for any of these people to think that they're pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. And by the way, it's not just like people who have a sense, a deeper sense of ideological and political commitment to socialist politics, right? A lot of people just in society in general know you're at it. You know, this is a big thing about the left, right? See if you've ever done any canvassing work around left-wing politics. The thing that you come up against, and people I know who are conservative voters and stuff like that, right? Not hard-bitten, right-wing ideological people. But the thing that you come across time and again is people saying, that left-wing politics stuff, that's just a grift. These people are on the make, right? They talk a lot about their personal virtue and how they want to help everyone, but at the end of the day, they are just self-serving. And there's, there's a part of that argument which is an excuse, right? It's an excuse for one's own cynicism. But part of it, of course, is the truth. There are a lot of people in left-wing institutions, in left-wing politics, who are self-serving and cynical, and they see it as a vehicle for themselves. 
totally people are like there are people out there on the left who are at it they're at it right like and you know when the left is in a strong position i don't really give a fuck if people are at it right if you're going to come on the demonstrations magic right that's another like 50 bods on a demonstration whatever it doesn't really matter when the political like moment is moving to the left you want to call politicians you want to call yourself a socialist now banging right on let's go but see when it comes to moments of crisis this is where people are tested and like fuck i'm not perfect in politics and i know that right but and i also do think that people should be able to change their mind on things but what i've noticed is that whenever the shit hits the fan like because of because i come from a political tradition like it's it gives you like a sense of strong birch like that you don't just snap in the wind like when there's like chaos when there's crisis when you're under fire like you're able to withstand it because of your ideological grounding and intellectual development now we owe that to the same part of Trotsky's tradition and like the way that that tradition has been passed on and the way it's been developed is now gone. So there aren't organizations for people to join to get this, this type of training. I mean, I suppose that's part of the counter project, right? Is that we want to be able to have like centers of ideological discussion where people can be developed intellectually in the same tradition that, that we were and people can join that or they don't have to. Um, but we need to start somewhere because the, the British Trotsky's left is in crisis. It's a massive crisis and it's having an impact on how people develop politically. If you develop politically only on Twitter and on the trade union movement and in the Labour Party, then it's not, it's not going to be enough to become strong birch or like steely in the face of what is going to be thrown at the left when you know, we try to advance the cause. And I think you made this point on, on Twitter last week, you know, that where people are politicized really, really matters. Um, I, do you remember when, like, everyone was going on about how Facebook and Twitter was going to, like, democratize the world? Look how that turned out. Like, this is, <laughs> this is not how history moves forward. No, it, it's a significant regression. And uh, by the way, like there, there are there, there, even in a country which traditionally had quite a weak radical left, like Britain, compared to other European countries, there were several trends representing a political tradition that went all the way back to, say, the Second International, right? Just as there were in many European countries, not just Trotskyism, but in different ways and not always with the same vitality. You know, you had the kind of communist party tradition. Um, you had, but you had certain traditions of, you know, even some of the stuff around like the ILP uh, and some figures on the left of, of, of the Labour Party um, of militant kind of syndicalist thought in, in the trade unions, where um, ideas, certain ideas were taken very seriously that clearly aren't now. You know what I mean? I mean, that, that's, that, that it's clear to see that from the current crisis. So the painful reality is when something like this happens, and it's not just this issue, it's several issues in the last few years. European Union might be another one. If you want to go to someone even for a sound take on what things, things are happening, it's people who have 
abiding in political tradition that isn't simply institutional like with the trade unions or the Labour Party or whatever or like <laughs> we're going to say the Green Party it's not even I mean or you know people who have learned their politics from social media right or people who have learned their politics from academia that's another very kind of strong post-traditional form of left-wing politics I honestly I, I couldn't I don't think I could fit on one or two hands the number of people whose opinions I trust who come from that kind of background. It's, it's always just so, the politics is so watered down. Uh, so little is held in, in earnest principle. That so good at evading, taking strong stances on anything. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's a wake up call. One of, the, one of the weird things about, one of the weird recurring arguments about left wing politics is always the argument against spontaneity. Like, on some level, a lot of people on the left, like left-wing activists and stuff, think that the kind of wisdom that comes from generations of the socialist movement, that that consciousness, that those ideas are spontaneously emerging. So, you know, um, it's very easy for people to look at the, the breakdown of Corbynism and say, ah, yes, but this is a movement that's still in an early phase of its development and so on, right? That, that you know, and, and it will learn, it's learning, it will learn towards some new synthesis of thought. It will radicalise or it will harden up or whatever. That's not an automatic process. It actually involves direct intervention, uh, conscious thought, and sometimes the uh to develop that consciousness in that movement will require things that feel initially counterintuitive like i understand why a lot of left-wing people intuitively when our own movement is accused of something like anti-semitism you know start start saying oh we need to root out the anti-semitism and we need to you know deal with all the racists in our ranks right because left-wing people are primed to be anti-racist they're primed to take that kind of stuff seriously it's a counterintuitive impulse to say, on one level, to say, wait a minute, like, what is this actually about? What's the class politics behind this? This is the other thing, right? To me, this crisis makes so clear why so-called intersectionality is such a load of guff, right? Because, okay, so, so one, of the, one of the groups that put out an equivocal statement about Corbyn was called something like, it's a Labour Party internal group called um, the Socialists of Colour Caucus or something like that. The statement they put out was classically equivocal. You know, on this day, we should have been talking about anti-Semitism, as though that's what the Equality and Human Rights Commission report was really about. We were supposed to be focused, because that wasn't ever, <laughs> the amount of faith people put in the Equality and Human Rights Commission as well, right? But it's a related point. It's a middle-class liberal institution, right? Class politics is real, but it never makes it into the intersectional analysis, weirdly, right? So this caucus released a statement saying, this should have been a day to understand anti-Semitism, blah, blah, blah. And then it condemned people on the left who were quick to come to Jeremy Corbyn's side and to defend him. And what it actually, this statement actually said is, you should have condemned anti-Semitism first. What are you actually saying that you're, we now need to monitor each other's like, social media accounts and make sure that you said, first of all, I condemn all anti-Semitism, then I think Jeremy Corbyn's been unfairly treated. 
ridiculous, just ridiculous, senseless moralizing, right? But here's the thing. I don't have evidence of this, but I'm willing to bet because like you have been around the left and I know how this kind of stuff works. Why does that statement read like that? Is it partly because of a confused idea in general about what's involved in anti-racist solidarity? Probably. I'm willing to bet that there's another reason that that statement is crap, which is that it's been written by middle-class people. It's been written by middle-class people who are career-seeking and they don't want to put themselves in a position where two years down the line, someone in a university department or someone at a trade union who wants their job in officialdom can say, ah, look how you behaved at the time that Corbyn was suspended. You didn't unequivocally, do you know what I mean, just condemn him as an anti-Semite. Ah, you know what I mean? You're unfit to hold this position or that position, right? I can build a faction of people against you, perhaps partly on this basis. But in the intersectional analysis, class never appears, even though it is, and it's clear to me, that it is the overriding motive force behind most people's activity most of the time. The people who, are, who, who instantly jump to Jeremy Corbyn's defense are generally people who don't have a career to, to defend. It's so obvious. The class division there is so obvious. It's so clear. People with a newspaper column to defend, mm, you know what I mean? Let's equivocate in a thousand words. Um, so, yeah. To be, I think, to be fair, there are a bunch of people who... Who are middle well, class who, no, who will say something. Like, there are people who, like, that I know, that I have been speaking to, who would actually enter into this debate, um, and they will do at the, at the time that they can. Um, and I do understand that. But I think you're hitting on a really important point, which is about... <sighs> about like the currency of intersectionality and the language of intersectionality as it's now become in the major institutions like academia, the media, the public sector, um, and how basically that language is used in order to get ahead. Um, it's now it's now easier to talk about intersectionality and for that to be a benefit to your career than the opposite within those institutions. Is that cancelable? It's obviously true. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it's been true, I'd suggest, for quite a while. I mean, I know what it's like, right? I, I've gone for jobs and I've looked at people in the job queue and I've thought, I'm going to get this job. And I know why it is. It's because of the way I talk. It's because I know to be careful with the way I present what I think and how I say it. A lot of this stuff is about, um, it's, a, it's, it's a morality cult that is shared among middle-class professions of a certain type. It's about, people can understand the class background you have, the kind of education that you have, your dependability to behave in a certain way, to conform in a certain way, to act in a certain way, they can tell that by the way you talk about, for example, equalities issues. They can tell that you're going to be the sort of person who plays ball based on that. I'm not saying that that's the whole basis of the phenomenon at all, right? There, there's a wider and more complex picture, but that's part of it. And that's a big part of how this stuff has been used against the left. Um, because 
like imagine Corbynism reached its full potential. It would have lost the support of a lot of professional liberals. It did anyway. It did anyway around Brexit. I mean, you literally saw the Corbynite um, sort of support break down partly in response to that issue. People who were willing to go along with the Corbyn thing, though they had serious misgivings, once Brexit happened, they identified their core interests and they broke away and they denounced him furiously, right? So if Corbynism had led to an even larger radicalization and destabilization of British society, and for a few years there, it was a serious, you know, part of the destabilizing forces that were destabilizing British um, society. If that had grown to an even higher pitch, right, it's not unrelated that he started to get attacked on so-called equalities issues. By the way, it wasn't just anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is the one that happened to stick, right? Yeah. Because um, it's such an appalling accusation and it, it tweaked a lot of people's neuroses at once, right? And people, you know, retreated into themselves and said, oh, we're going to have to do something about how, you know, James Corbyn being anti-Semite. He was also accused of being a misogynist and a homophobe and everything. Like, he was, even despite the fact that he's probably the least... You know, I mean, you would be hard-pressed to find one person in a million who was more right-on than Jeremy Corbyn, right? But uh, he's been accused of absolutely everything. That, see that weaponization of accusations, like racism, for example? It directly corresponds to classes. It obviously directly corresponds to class tensions in society, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I can understand that there will be people out there who didn't rate Jeremy Corbyn as a leader. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get that, um, who thought that he was ramshackle, didn't dress well enough, didn't play the game well enough. But surely even those people can recognise that what is happening is wrong. It's wrong. Like that, and, and that's what this comes down to. Like This is one of my, like there's little pockets of my politics which are often quite childlike. And I will just be like, well, is this right or is it wrong? And it's fundamentally wrong. It's <laughs> This is not fair. That's what really like gets my blood boiling is that it's not fair. And people who, through indifference, fear, or a desire for self-protection um, and self-advancement are saying nothing. Um they're just like I can't really I can't forgive it yet I'll get there but I can't forgive it yet but what's also like we're probably coming across as very pious on this pod so apologies for that but (laughs) pious cast pious cast very protestant um but it's actually made me reflect on where I have been on other issues where there has been been attacks on socialists and trying to actually see where people who defended other socialists when they were caught up in conspiracies or when they were caught up in scandals and I mean that kind of in a global sense I'm not just talking about Scotland and Sheridan and that sort of thing but you know is it possible for me to work again with people who had an had a one view on the Sheridan case and not on the other like of course it is I mean in time we have to heal these bonds but at the moment I'm still like totally furious about the Corbyn thing um yeah I mean it's just really it just feels very 
unfair um, but I don't want to you know I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that I'm never speaking to anyone ever again who didn't defend Jeremy Corbyn that's probably going a bit far certainly not and what you would still hope particularly by the way this is another part of the grimness of this situation is I suspect some people will change their mind if it looks like Corbyn's definitely getting his membership back yeah well this is the thing this is when they can come back on the bus do you know what I mean come on lads all aboard the Good ship socialism. The door is, this is the thing, this is my approach to politics is that the door always has to be open, right? And there was times in politics where I was like, the door's open for some people, but definitely not for others because of positions they've taken in the past, things they've said in the past. Um, you know what I'm getting at, right? Like historic left-wing fallouts, disputes and scandals. But now I'm my view is that the door always has to be open for everyone fundamentally like we have to believe in people's capacity to change and to change their mind and to change their mind honestly and like i'm saying on the corbyn thing i am not there yet but with god's good grace i will get there (laughs) i also think people because we're talking a lot about one man here right this i mean he's not a hero i think it's important like to emphasize that you know it's not about lionizing him or idealizing him or um because it's not just about Corbyn this is what I'm saying is like this could happen to any one of us on the left yeah and and as you said if it can happen to Corbyn Corbyn has the cleanest hands right yes I, I I would hope that was true by the way because I wouldn't want to be part of a social movement that was part that was full of people who'd never done anything wrong that sounds like invasion of the body snatchers, right? I mean, a social movement made up of people who've never told a nasty joke, never said anything foolish or ugly, never behaved badly. It doesn't exist. It can never exist. Because, because we're well, human- it can. It can exist, but that's called a cult. Yeah. <laughs> like when- we all know there's never any bad behavior in a cult. No. No, the yeah. cults are pure, and what happens in the cult is righteous. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so if you want a social movement that's more than like six nuns who live on a tiny island off the coast of Ireland or something, right? If you'd like it to be bigger than that, you're going to have to accept that it includes a lot of people who have done and said things a lot more foolish than anything that Jeremy Corbyn has ever said. I mean, I go back to this thing that Corbyn said when he was first running for election. I bang on about it all the time. So I'm a, I do apologize for boring people with it. But when he was getting derided in the press the first time he was elected as Labour leader, he made a speech, I think it was in Stoke, um, or somewhere like that. You know what my English geography is like. Um, he's, he made a speech which in which he said something like, my neighbours tell me that people say terrible things about me in the press, but it's okay, I forgive them all. I mean, that's beautiful. That that's like actually I do think that that is a useful approach to left wing politics because if we don't have forgiveness and redemption, then it will just literally be six of us. Like if we if we don't accept that people can change and can change their mind and you know at least clean up their nasty jokes, then yeah yeah, uh, but. Although with Hamza Yusuf's new hate crime bill, we'll have like little spy cams in our home beaming all of our nasty jokes right back to Holyrood. Well, but seriously, like, I mean, maybe not quite. I mean, I don't know much about that uh, issue, by the way. I'd be interested in your thoughts. But 
we do actually live in, a, in an era, era, of course, of much more heightened surveillance. I mean, this is part of the phenomenon of recent years. Remember when Stormzy he found out when he was a teenager or something, he'd told a homophobic joke, right? And Stormy, to his, Stormzy, to his credit, Stormy. <laughs> Stormy! <laughs> the whitest guy in the world is now discussing grime, right? All right, uh, Dad. Yeah. Stormy, uh, he, uh, he, you know, he came up with a great statement and said... I was a really stupid thing to say. I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? I um, uh, apologize for it and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, but here's the thing, right? We live in an age where much more than any generation before, there is a huge log of everyone's behavior on the internet, and it's owned by a bunch of rich people, right? And I'm not just talking for people, for, for, for the dirty, filthy people who Shan Berry would never allow into the Green Party who are listening to this podcast right now. I don't just mean the stuff that you've like, tweeted on Twitter uh, or you know, the, the stuff you've said on Facebook or um, the jokes you've told on WhatsApp to that group uh, that doesn't exist, right? Where you say things that you'd never let your mother hear, right? The secret I'm, group chats. Secret Everybody group has a secret group chat. Right? I'm also what? talking about your search history when you go on the incognito mode on Google, right? Some rich guy owns all that too, right? So before you decide to destroy Jeremy Corbyn or allow watching him being also psychologically smashed, right? I mean, the, the psychological war against Jeremy Corbyn and the left is profound, right? For what's the worst thing Jeremy Corbyn ever did? And this wasn't what he was suspended for. Jeremy Corbyn was suspended for saying that he think, he disagreed with something in the EHRC report. Like, that's now something you can get kicked out of a political party that you used to lead for. Probably the worst thing he ever did was make an innocuous comment on a stupid piece of artwork, uh, graffiti art, that was a cartoon that included like um, the Rothschild banking family or something like that, right? And he put a comment underneath it saying something like, oh, that's terrible, they've taken down your cartoon or something, right? Probably not understanding for a minute what it represented. Um, that's probably the worst thing he's ever done. Everyone listening to this has done something worse, right? And everyone in society has done something worse. And everyone of Jeremy Corbyn's accusers has done something worse. And there are no, we don't live in an age of innocence, right? And if Corbyn can be got, we can all be got. And finally, right, why this is so much wider than just Corbyn the man. This is an enormous blow to anti-racism in this country. One of the country's stalwart, you know, characteristic anti-racist forces who's been an anti-racist force for decades right? Apartheid, against the NF, against PREVENT, which is still enforced in Muslim, country, Muslim communities all over the country after it was imposed on the country by the Blairites. Um, they're still spying on the Muslim community. There are still spies in the mosques. Uh, as I'm a, it's one of the story that I wrote that got no national coverage at all. Childline spy on the Muslim community. They use the Muslim community's children to spy on their parents. Uh, in line with prevent. It's that insidious and vile, right? It's that racist. He fought against that. The people who imposed that on Muslim communities in this country are still in the Labour Party. Are yeah, but this is also, 
this also is the argument that I've been trying to make now for a few the last few months, particularly on the the way that these struggles, like anti-racist struggles, have been completely decoupled from discussions about imperialism and anti-imperialism. Like the current intersectional discourse can't deal with imperialism. It doesn't talk about it. So actually, when we're talking about prevent as a racist policy. Um, that is still going on to this day that targets the Muslim community and how that is tied to imperialist projects and the UK-US adventures in the Middle East. Like, nobody, like, people just aren't interested in talking about that. Like, but that is, that's the key link. And actually, if you want to talk about the US-UK imperial project in the Middle East, then you have to look at Israel and Palestine. That's why Palestine solidarity is still important. It's not because, oh, the poor Palestinians. It's because, no, this is actually the weak link in the chain. This is where, this is where there is a, a weak link that we can use to talk about um, foreign intervention and military power and global politics. Like that's, and that's not, that's not me being a, what was it? Uh, Loki said on Twitter, uh, I'm not being a chin-stroking Marxist when I say that. Like for decades and decades in workplaces across Scotland, people talked about what was happening in Palestine, what was happening in Chile, what was happening in Spain. Like there is actually a tradition in our country of internationalism from below that's that's being lost when we're talking about anti-racist struggle. Because it's not just about what's happening here. It's about the fact that we are interconnected with other nations and the aggressor and those who are victim to that aggression but also historically and our part in the historical development um, in the Middle East for example or in Africa and all of these things all these dots have to be joined up and more often than not they aren't and this is where intersectional discourse completely fails no, absolutely. I mean, because it's not political. It's not. It's not a form of politics. It's a form of. I mean, we know what it is. It's. It's. It's how to talk as a young professional. You know, like in Victorian era, you got little hardback books called, you know, how to behave at the dinner table. How like, to be a good wife. How to be a good wife. Yeah. How to put on the best Christmas dinner. Um, all that kind of stuff. Well, now it's you know, <laughs> equalities for the up and coming young gentleman. Or uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. What was the What was the other one? Um, White Fragility. Uh, was it Men Explain Things to Me? Or something? I mean, that's what these by are. By Rebecca Solnit. Uh, these, are, these are like Victorian morality journals. You got them, you know. How, 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 you know how, to be, how to be a good Christian for the designing young professional. And it's only 50 pages long, right? Because you're living such a fucking vacuous life. <laughs> yeah you know you, you couldn't handle it at home any larger than that so it's we will you know in, in the shortest possible ta- uh, time we will teach you how to fit into polite society gruesome awful i mean who really needs halloween when you've got this you've got reality you've got the upper middle class you know who needs halloween when you've got the pmc breathing down your fucking necks every day yeah yeah 
Um, will we sum up? Yeah, I, I, I want to sum up. I want to say one last thing, uh, which go is, for it. Which is simply that um, because I, I like, yeah, that that the, the stuff that we've seen in relation to that isn't anti-racism. That's all I want to say. It's not anti-racism. There are traditions of of militant political fighting anti-racism. You know, there's the tradition of Stonewall, right? There's the tradition of the Black Panthers. There's the tradition of the anti-colonial struggles of the civil rights movement, uh, of, you know, the feminist movement in the 70s, of militant, organized politics, right? And then there's the culture of that equalities checklist, the politics, that tradition, and the two things aren't the same and they are actually opposed to each other. I just wanted to say that because I don't know if I said it during the uh, our, our earlier discussion. No, you didn't. Because, you know, some people will say, oh, so what you're saying is that class is the only thing that matters. No, real anti-oppression politics also matter. But that's not the same thing as the bullshit. Correct. Correct. If this was Twitter, I would retweet you and like. Retweet and like that. One hundred percent. Okay, that's the end of this podcast. Hopefully, something a bit cheerier for the next part. No, man, that was really grim. Although I do, I feel felt quite therapeutic in a way. Purged now, yeah. Um, don't talk to. Don't say the word purge. Jeez. <laughs> purge, purge pod. That's what we're calling this. Purge, purge cast. Purge cast. I don't know. That sounds a bit rude. Um, yeah so we'll try and do another pod soon because this is to balance out the last bumper pod which was two hours mm. we'll just this is a little a little quickie yeah which also sounds rude <laughs> <laughs> somebody stop me right uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast then please visit contour.co.uk for articles um, other video content subscribe to our youtube channel and if you can afford to give us a donation to keep the pod running and to keep the website running then you can give that donation at contour.co.uk that was my radio voice i was doing <laughs>